0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with an assortment of Keith Oberman's special comments regarding the real history of the Bush administration, a rebuke to Cheney's self-defense, President Obama's escalation of the war in Afghanistan, the healthcare reform bill, the Ground Zero Mosque, the Prop 8 ruling in California, followed by Keith's final sign-off, with a bonus clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Majority Report.
1: President Bush tells interviewers he does not care how history will portray him, but in our third story tonight, the Los Angeles Times has obtained an internal White House memo giving cabinet members talking points for painting history a rosy portrait of Mr. Bush, even though his image will only get worse as new and damning facts emerge. What does the memo say, and how are we obligated to correct its bizarre claims? To start, it says Mr. Bush, quote, promised to raise standards and accountability in public schools and delivered the No Child Left Behind Act, an act so poorly received, that the Times points out it became a standard applause line this year for Democrats. Also from the memo, he curbed AIDS in Africa. Its spread has slowed, and Mr. Bush has won praise for this, but he has not won any praise for withholding funds from groups that promote condom use, a proven lifesaver, in favor of abstinence-only programs, which have also failed in this country. Also, Mr. Bush's foreign aid Puritan, Randall Tobias, quit last year after patronizing an escort service linked to prostitution. Also from the memo, Mr. Bush lifted the economy with his tax cuts and, quote, responded with bold measures to prevent an economic meltdown. 2005, Mr. Bush told a 57-year-old single mother of three, one of the mentally challenged, that it was, quote, fantastic, uniquely American that she had to work three jobs, unlike half a million people who have no job as of November in the first presidency for decades during which family earning power fell and income disparity continued to rise. The meltdown he prevented now having claimed several Wall Street institutions which had weathered 1929 and 9-11 but not Forty-three, And, of course, the old standby, quote, he kept the American people safe, not counting 20% of his first term, January 20th, 2001, until September 11th, 2001. On 9-11, he sat reading My Pet Goat for seven minutes after learning America was under attack, then covered up environmental dangers at Ground Zero and failed to provide for the health of rescue workers. He helped bin Laden's family flee the country, opposed the 9-11 Commission, opposed the Department of Homeland Security, tried to outsource America's port security to Dubai did not keep us safe from the shoe bomber alert passengers and crew did that did not keep five Americans safe from anthrax and never caught their killer still has not caught the killer of 17 sailors aboard the USS Cole still has not caught the killer of 3,000 on 9-11 outsourcing that to Afghans turning that country into a narco state giving bin Laden a safe haven in the region of Waziristan by literally endorsing a truce that Pakistan signed with the Taliban there and most of all not keeping safe 4,200 Americans dead in his war, a war that made us less safe, invading a country that posed no grave or gathering threat, provided a check on Iran, then igniting insurrection by disbanding the Ba'athist party, creating a Muslim theocracy purged of its moderate intelligentsia, one in which freedom has marched backward for women, and Lebanon, too, elected a Muslim theocracy run by Hamas, no less. Keeping us safe? Terrorism is rising worldwide. The still-thriving enemy has claimed Pakistan's Benazir Bhutto and thousands of people in India, including 200 in Mumbai just last month. Russia can now invade U.S. allies without fear of retribution. And Mr. Bush failed to prevent Kim Jong-il from joining the ranks of nuclear powers. Despite even more ample warning than he received prior to 9-11, he lifted not a finger to keep a major American city safe from wind and water. And what, finally, of the claim in the talking points that Mr. Bush has already always upheld, quote, the honor and dignity of his office. You must define dignity downward to find it in a lie, the lie of mission accomplished, of upholding the Constitution or protecting habeas corpus, that we do not eavesdrop without warrants, we do not eavesdrop on Americans, the lie that we do not torture, that we do not play politics with justice, that we do not use the wheels of justice to crush dissent, that we do not betray those who serve us in secret, that we uphold rather than commute The penalties for those who do, that we do not stage fake news conferences, do not censor science, do not plant propaganda in Iraqi newspapers, nor pay U.S. columnists who write it in American newspapers, or push respected Americans to vaporize their honor and dignity with lies to the world, or lie about the causes of the credit crisis, high gas prices, or even that he watched the first plane hit the North Tower on TV where is the honor of vowing a crusade of daring those who would kill american troops to bring it on of promising to care for the troops after you put them in harm's way without body armor or up armored vehicles where was the honor the dignity in giving a dead soldier's mother a presidential coin and telling her don't sell it on ebay his memo revealing yet another lie he does care how history will portray him and now he knows while
2: we're on the subject could we change the subject now i was knocking on your ears don't believe you were always out looking towards the future we were begging for the past well we know we had the good things but those never seemed to last oh please just last. everyone's unhappy wants a shame Well, we all just got caught looking at somebody else's page Well, nothing ever went quite exactly as we planned Our ideas held no water, but we used them like damn.
1: Finally tonight, as promised, a special comment about Mr. Cheney's speech. Neurotic, paranoid, false to fact and false to reason, forever self-rationalizing, his inner rage at his own impotence and failure dripping from every word, and as irrational, as separated from the real world, as dishonest, as insane as any terrorist, the former vice president has today humiliated himself beyond redemption. The delusional claims he has made this day could be proved by documentation and first-hand testimony to be the literal and absolute truth, and still he himself would be wrong because the America he sought to impose upon the world and upon its own citizens, the dark, hateful place of Dick Cheney's own soul, the place he to this hour defends and to this day prefers, is a repudiation of all that our ancestors, all that for which our brave troops of 200 years ago and two minutes ago have sacrificed and fought. I do have to congratulate you, sir. No man living or dead could have passed the buck more often than you did in 35 minutes this morning. It's not your fault that we waterboarded people, you said. It isn't torture, you said, even though it is based on 111 years of American military prosecutions. It was in the Constitution that you could do it, even if our laws told you you could not. It was in the language of the 2001 military authorization. You force-fed the Congress that you could do it even if our international treaties told you you could not. It produced valuable information, you said, even though the first-hand witnesses, the interrogators of these beasts, they said the information preceded the torture and ended when it began. It was authorized, you said, by careful legal opinion, even though the legal opinions were dictated by you and your cronies, and oh, by the way, the torture began before the legal opinions were even written. It was authorized, you said, and you imply that even if it really wasn't, it was done only to detainees of the highest intelligence value. It was more necessary, you said, because of the revelation of another program by the real villains of our time, the New York Times, even though that revelation was possible because the program was detailed on the front page of the website of a Defense Department subcontractor. It was all the fault of your predecessors, you said, who tried to treat terror as a law enforcement problem before you came to office and rode to the rescue after you totally ignored terrorism for the first 20% of your first term and the worst attack on this nation in its history unfolded on your watch. 9-11 caused everyone to take a serious second look at threats that had been gathering for a while, you said today, and enemies whose plans were getting bolder and more sophisticated. Gee, thanks for being motivated by the deaths of nearly three thousand americans to go so far as to take a serious second look and thank you sir for admitting obviously inadvertently that you did not take a serious first look in the seven months and twenty three days between your inauguration and nine eleven for that attack sir you are culpable morally ethically at best you were guilty of malfeasance and eternally lasting stupidity at worst sir in the deaths of nine eleven you are negligent. The circular logic and the self-righteous sophistry falls from a copy of Mr. Cheney's speech like bugs from a book on a moldy shelf. He still believes in dictators like Saddam Hussein with known ties to Mideast terrorists. He still assumes everyone we captured is guilty without charge or trial, but that to prosecute lawbreaking by government officials is, quote, to have an incoming administration criminalize the policy decisions of its predecessors. And most sleazy of all, while calling the CIA's torturers honorable, he insists the grunts at Abu Ghraib were a few sadistic prison guards who abused inmates in violation of American law, military regulations, and simple decency. Even though, and maybe he does not know we know this, even though there is documentary proof now that those guards were acting on the orders originating in the office of Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld. It is, in short, Madness. Madness, sir. Mr. Cheney, your speech was almost entirely about you. There are only five or six other people even mentioned, and only two quoted at any length. And why would you have quoted as you did the man who said this? I know that this program saved lives. I know we've disrupted plots. I know this program alone is worth more than the FBI, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the National Security Agency put together have been able to tell us. As you know, sir, you are quoting former CIA director George Tenet. That would be the George Tenet who told Congress on February 11, 2003, quote, Iraq is harboring senior members of a terrorist network led by Abu Musab al zarqawi a close associate of al-Qaeda. Mr. Tenet, sir, then went into elaborate detail about the Iraq-al-Qaeda connection. None of it was true. This is your source, as he was your boss's source. George, how confident are you, President Bush asked Tenet, about Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction just before the Iraq war, according to Bob Woodward's book, Plan of Attack. Don't worry, Tenet answered. It's a slam dunk. That is your independent authority on how well torture worked. Next time you see him, Mr. Cheney, you might as well ask Mr. Tenet if he thinks he is Napoleon. I don't want to know who you think you are. Those are the basic facts on enhanced interrogations, you concluded, and to call this a program of torture is to libel the dedicated professionals who saved American lives and to cast terrorists and murderers as innocent victims. You saved no one, sir. If the classified documents you seek released really did detail plots other than those manufactured by drowning men in order to get it to stop. Or if they truly did note plans beyond the laughable ones, you and President Bush have already revealed hijackers without passports targeting a building whose name Mr. Bush could not remember, clowns who thought they could destroy airports by dropping matches in fuel pipelines 30 miles away, men who plan to attack a military base dressed as pizza delivery boys forgetting that every man there was armed, and today the four would-be synagogue bombers, one of whom turns out to keep bottles of urine in his apartment and is on schizophrenia medicine. If those documents contained anything of value, you would have leaked them already as you leaked those revenge fantasies of the library tower and the JFK bomber and the Fort Dix 6. When they, terrorists, see the American government caught up in arguments about interrogations, or whether foreign terrorists have constitutional rights. They don't stand back in awe of our legal system and wonder whether they had misjudged us all along, you said. Instead, the terrorists see just what they were hoping for, our unity gone, our resolve shaken, our leaders distracted. In short, they see weakness and opportunity. The weakness the terrorists see, sir, is the weakness of blind rage replacing essential cold logic. The weakness the terrorists see, sir, is the weakness of judgment suspended in favor of self-fulfilling prophecy. The weakness the terrorists see, sir, is the weakness of moral force supplanted by violence and revenge fantasies. The weakness the terrorists see, sir, is the weakness of Dick Cheney. And yet still, ceaselessly, indefatigably, you moralize and lie to us. I might add, someone said today, that people who consistently distort the truth in this way are in no position to lecture anyone about values. Very apt. The quote, of course, is from your speech. Your speech, which was at essence about your fantasy that you and Mr. Bush were not negligent, about your pig-headed certainty that first these attacks were impossible, then they were a good excuse for a war you had already planned in Iraq, and finally that they were to be imminently repeated and only you knew whence the next threat would come. You saved no one, Mr. Cheney. All you did was help kill Americans. You were negligent before 9-11. Your response to your complicity by omission on 9-11 was panic and shame and insanity, and lying this country into a war that did nothing but kill 42,000, uh, 4,299 more of us. We will take no further instruction from you, sir. And let me again quote Oliver Cromwell to you, Mr. Cheney. You have sat too long for any good you have been doing lately. Depart, I say, and let us have done with you. In the name of God, go. This is
2: our last goodbye. I hate to feel the
0: love between us now. a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com.
1: President, it now falls to you to be both former Republican Senator George Aiken and the man to whom he spoke, Lyndon Johnson. You must declare victory and get out. You should survey the dismal array of options in front of you, even the orders given out last night, sort them into the unacceptable, the unsuccessful, and the merely unpalatable, and then put your arm down on the table and wipe the entire assortment of them off your desk, off this nation's desk, and into the proverbial scrap heap of history. Unless you are utterly convinced, willing to bet American lives on it, that the military understands the clock is running, the check is not blank, and the Pentagon will go to sleep when you tell it to, even though the Pentagon is a bunch of perpetually 12-year-old boys desperate to stay up as late as possible by any means necessary. Unless you're sure of all that, get out now. We are at present fighting in no particular order. The Taliban, a series of sleazy political slash military adventures, not the least of whom is this mountebank election fixture Karzai, and what National Security Advisor Jones estimated in October was around eight dozen al-Qaeda in the neighborhood. But poll after poll and anecdote after anecdote of the reality of public opinion inside Afghanistan is that its residents believe we are fighting Afghanistan, that we, sir, have become an occupying force. Yes, if we leave, Afghanistan certainly will have an occupying force one way or the other, whether it's from Pakistan or consisting of foreign fighters who will try to ally themselves with the Taliban. Can you prevent that? Can you convince the Afghans that you can prevent that? Can you convince Americans that it is the only way to undo Bush and Cheney policy catastrophes dating back to Cheney's days as Secretary of Defense in the 90s? If not, Mr. President, that way lies Vietnam. If you like Iraq, you'll love Afghanistan with 35,000 more troops complete with the new wrinkles straight from the minder binder lingo of Joseph Heller's Catch-22. President Obama will be presenting an exit strategy for Afghanistan, the exit strategy that begins by entering still further. Lose to win, sink to swim, escalate to disengage. And even this disconnect of fundamental logic is predicated on the assumption that once the extra troops go in, when the President says, okay, time for adult swim, generals, time to get out of the pool and bring the troops with you, that the Pentagon is just going to say, yeppers. The Pentagon, often to our eternal relief, but just as often, sadly, to our eternal regret, is in the war business. You were right, Mr. President, to slow the process down once a series of exit strategies had been offered to you by men whose power, and in some case livelihoods, are predicated on making sure all exit strategies everywhere, forever, don't really result in any service man or woman actually exiting. These men are still in what the belly of the, what President Eisenhower so rightly, so prophetically christened, the military-industrial complex. Now, And later, as these civilian gray eminences with retired next to their names, formally lobbying the House and the Senate, informally lobbying the nation through television and the printed word to engage here or serve there or invest everywhere, they are, in many cases, just glorified hardware salesmen. It was political and operational brilliance, sir, to retain Mr. Bush's last Secretary of Defense, Mr. Gates. It was transitional and bipartisan insight, sir, to maintain General Stanley McChrystal as a key leader in the field. And it was a subtle but powerful reminder to the authoritarian-minded war hawks like John McCain and the blithering idiots like former Governor Palin of the civilian authority of the Constitution. It was a picture drawn in crayon for ease of digestion by the right to tell our employees at the Pentagon to take their loaded options and go away and come back with some real ones. You reminded them, Mr. President, that Mr. Gates works for the people of the United States of America, not the other way around. You reminded them, Mr. President, that General McChrystal is our employee, not our dictator. You reminded them, Mr. President, now, tonight, again, remind yourself. Stanley McChrystal. General McChrystal has doubtless served his country bravely and honorably and at great risk. But to date, his lasting legacy will be as the great facilitator of the obscenity that was transmuting the greatest symbol of this nation's true patriotism, its actual willingness to sacrifice into a distorted circus funhouse mirror version of such selflessness. Friendly fire killed Pat Tillman, Mr. McChrystal killed the truth about Pat Tillman, and that willingness to stand truth on its head. On behalf of selling a war, or the generic idea of America being at war, to turn a dead hero into a meaningless recruiting poster should ring essentially relevant right now. From the very center of a part of our nation that could lie to the public, could lie to his mother about what really happened to Pat Tillman, from the very man who was at the operational center of that plan, comes the entire series of plans to help us supposedly find the way out of Afghanistan? We are supposed to believe General McChrystal is not lying about Afghanistan? Didn't he blow his credibility by lying, so obviously and so painfully, about Pat Tillon? Why are we still believing the McChrystals? Their reasons might sound better than the ones they helped George Bush and Dick Cheney fabricate for Iraq, but surely they are just as transparently oblivious of the forest. Half of them insist we must stay in Afghanistan out of fear of not repeating Iraq while the other half, believing Bush failed in Iraq by having too few troops, insist we must stay out of Afghanistan or in Afghanistan out of fear of repeating Iraq. And they are suddenly sounding frighteningly similar to what the Soviet generals were telling the Soviet politicos in the 1980s about Afghanistan. Sure, it's not going well. Sure we need to get out. We all see that. But let's first make sure it's stabilized, and then we get out. The Afghans will be impressed by our commitment, and will then take over the cost of policing themselves even though that cost would be several times their gross national product. Just send in those extra troops, just for a while. Just uh, 350,000. I'm sorry, did I say 350,000? I meant 35,000. Must be a coffee stain on the paper. (sighs) Mr. President, last fall, you were elected. Not General McChrystal, not Secretary Gates, not another Bushian drone of a politician. You on the change ticket, on the pitch that all politicians are not created equal. And upon arrival, you were greeted by a three-mile island of an economy so bad that in the most paranoid recesses of the mind, one could reasonably wonder if the Republicans didn't plan it that way, to leave you in the position of having to prove the ultimate negative, that you had staved off worldwide financial collapse, that if you had not done what you so swiftly did, that this economic cloudy day would have otherwise been the biblical flood of finance. So much of the change for which you were elected, sir, has thus far been, understandably, if begrudgingly, tabled, delayed, made more open-ended. But patience ebbs, Mr. President. And while the first 1,000 key decisions of your presidency were already made, and already made about the economy, the first public, easy to discern, mouse-or-elephant kind of decision becomes public tomorrow night at West Point at 8 o'clock. You know this, Mr. President. We cannot afford this war. Nothing makes less sense to our economy than the cost of supply for 35,000 new troops. Nothing will do more to slow economic recovery. You might as well shoot the revivified auto industry or embrace the John Boehner health care reform and spray tan reimbursement system you know this, Mr. President, we cannot afford this war. Nothing makes less sense to our status in the world than for us to re-up as occupiers of Afghanistan and for you to look like you were unable to extricate yourself from a military Chinese finger puzzle left for you by Bush and Cheney and the rest of Halliburton's henchmen. And most of all, and those of us who have watched these first nine months, trust, trust both your judgment and the fact that you know this, Mr. President, unless you are exactly right We cannot afford this war, for if all else is even, and everything from the opinion of the generals to the opinion of the public is even, we cannot afford to send these troops back into that quagmire for second tours, or thirds, or fourths, or fifths. We cannot afford this ethically, sir. The country has for eight shameful years forgotten its moral compass and its world purpose, and here is your chance to reassert that there is, in fact, American exceptionalism. We are better. We know when to stop making our troops suffer in order to make our generals happy. You, sir, called for change, for the better way, for the safety of our citizens, including those citizens being wasted in war for the sake of war, for a reasserting of our moral force. And we listened. And now you must listen. You must listen to yourself. As promised, a special comment on health care reform in this country, and in particular, the public insurance option. Because the insurance industry owns the Republican Party. Not exclusively. Pharma owns part of it, too. Hospitals and HMOs, another part, nursing homes, they have a share. You name a Republican, any Republican, and he is literally brought to you by campaign donations from the health sector. Senator John Thune of South Dakota, You gave that Republican rebuttal to the president's weekly address the day before yesterday. You said the Democrats' plan was for, quote, government-run health care that would disrupt our current system and force millions of Americans who currently enjoy their employer-based coverage into a new health care plan run by government bureaucrats. That's a bald-faced lie, Senator, and you're a bald-faced liar whose bald face happens to be covered by your own health care plan run by government bureaucrats. Nobody would be forced into anything, and the public insurance option is no more a disruption than is letting the government sell you water and not just Poland Spring and sparklets. But as corrupt hypocrites go, Senator, at least you're well paid. What was that one statement worth to you in contributions from the health sector, Senator Thune? $5,000? 10 We know what you are, sir. We're arguing about the price. What about your other quote? We can accomplish health care reform while keeping patients and their doctors in charge, not bureaucrats and politicians. Wow, Senator, this illustrates how desperate you and the other Republicans are, right? Because Senator Thune, if you really think bureaucrats and politicians need to get out of the way of patients and their doctors, then you support, obviously, a woman patient's right to get an abortion. And you supported Michael Schiavo's right to take his wife off life support, and you oppose bureaucrats and politicians getting in the way, and we'll just mark you down on the pro-choice list. That's a rare misstep for you, Senator Thune. No $12,000 payoff for that statement. I'm not being hyperbolic, am I, Senator, about the money? Senator Thune has thus far received from the health sector campaign contributions, and all these numbers tonight are from the Center for Responsive Politics. Campaign contributions amounting to $1,206,176. So much for Senator Thune. How about Congresswoman Ginny Brown-Waite? Good evening, ma'am. You are the Florida representative who claimed on the floor that Democrats had, quote, released a health care bill which essentially said to America's seniors, drop dead. Now those are strong and terrorizing words. That's exactly what your insurance and medical overlords wanted to hear. But are you truly worth every dollar of the 369255 of them you have received over the years from the health sector? I'd read the rest of the operative part of your great speech myself, but your rendition actually cannot be matched.
2: Listen up, America. Seniors have special needs. This bill ignores, ignores the needs of Florida's health care system. We should be fixing what is broke, not disseminate disseminating decimating the care of our senior population.
1: You can always tell, can't you, Congresswoman, when the hostage is reading her own ransom note and when she is reading one written for her. So much for Congresswoman Brown-Waite. I could go on all night here and never exaggerate in the slightest. PBS pointed out that the health and insurance industries are spending more than $1,400,000 a day just to destroy the public option, the truly non-profit, wieldy, round-up and not round-down government from helping you pay your medical bills with about a billionth of the recklessness with which it is still paying Halliburton and its spin-offs to kill your kids. And much of this money is going to and through Republicans. But that's the real point tonight. Not all of it is going through Republicans. Because the evil truth is, the insurance industry, along with the hospitals, HMOs, pharma, nursing homes, it owns Democrats, too. Not the whole party. Candidate Barack Obama got more than 18 million from the health sector just last year, and you can bet somebody in the health trust, somebody responsible for buying influence, they got fired over what Obama has done. No, the Democrats are not wholly owned. Hundreds of Democrats have taken campaign money from the health sector without handing over their souls as receipts, but conveniently the ones who are owned have made themselves easy to spot in a crowd. They've called themselves Blue Dogs, and they are out there, hand in hand with the Republicans who they are happy to condemn day and night on everything else, throatily singing Kumbaya with the men and women who were bought and sold to defend this con game of an American health care system against the slightest encroachment. Congressman Mike Ross of Arkansas, leader of the Blue Dogs in the House, you're the guy demanding a guarantee that reform will not add to the deficit. I'm guessing you just forgot to demand that about, say, Iraq. You're a Democrat, you say, Congressman. You saw what Sandy Barham said? Sandy Barm is 62 years old, she's got a bad heart, she's hoping her valves will hold together for three more years until Medicaid kicks in, because she can't afford insurance. Not just for herself, mind you, for her employees, too. She needs the public option. So do those six people who work at that restaurant of hers, Congressman Ross. And why should you give a crap? Because Sandy Barham's restaurant is the Broadway Railroad Cafe, and it is at 123 West 1st Street North in Prescott, Arkansas. Prescott, Arkansas, Congressman Ross. Your hometown, you are Sandy Barham's congressman, hers, sir, not blue crosses and blue shields, even if they do insure 75% of the state and they own you. The top donor so far to Congressman Ross's bid for re-election next year, the Blue Dog Pack, 10,000 bucks. Second, something called Invacare, 7,300. Oh, they make wheelchairs and rollers and slings. They're big in slings. Tied for third, the American Dental Association, another grand, five grand, matter of fact. Your top donors by industry, Congressman Ross, health professionals, 29,250. Then pharma and health products, 12,250. And so far in your career, Congressman Ross, your total haul from the health sector is 921,000. That is 90th in the combined list of donations for the House and the Senate, sir, 90th out of 537. You should be proud, Congressman. Except for the fact that before you started living off the public dime, you owned a pharmacy, and your grandmother was a nurse. And it turns out you're not Sandy Barham's Congressman after all. You are Blue Crosses. So much for Congressman Ross. Congressman Bart Gordon of Tennessee, Congressman, undecided on the public option, at a $1,173,000 in donations from the health sector, I'm surprised. You should have already said no and loudly. The only thing you should be undecided about is whether or not you're really a Democrat. So much for Congressman Gordon. Senator Max Baucus of Montana, Good evening, Senator. So you're supposed to be negotiating all this out with the Republicans and the hesitant Democrats to gain bipartisanship with a wholly owned subsidiary of the health sector. Bipartisanship that will get you what? A total of no votes? And your price has been, let's see, $414,000 in donations from the hospitals, $667,000 in donations from the insurance companies, just over a million from Big Pharma, $1,300,000 from other health professionals, and $237,000 from nursing homes. When you think of getting $237,000 in campaign contributions from nursing homes, Senator Baucus, do you ever think about whether they subtract that amount of money evenly from all the patients suffering and dying and the lousy ones? Or just from a few of the lousy ones. So much for Senator Baucus. Sadly, this list could go on almost all night, too. I could ask Blue Dog Congressman Democrat John Tanner, Tennessee, if, since he has gotten two hundred and fifteen grand from hospitals over the years, if I and the appropriate number of my friends were willing to make it 216 grand if we could buy his vote, or would there still have to be an auction? I could bring up Senator Hagan and Congressman Pomeroy, who at 628,000 appears to represent the insurance industry and not North Dakota. I could bring up Senator Carper and Senator Blanche Lincoln and Senator Lincoln, by the way, considering how you're obstructing health care reform, how do you feel every time you actually see Senator Kennedy? We could bring up all the other Democrats doing their master's bidding in the House or the Senate, all the others who will get an extra thousand from somebody if they just postpone the vote another year, another month, another week. Because right now, without the competition of a government-funded insurance company, in one hour, the healthcare industries can make so much money that they would kill you for that extra hour of profit. I could call them all out by name, but I think you get the point. We do not need to call the Democrats, holding this up, blue dogs. That one word, dogs, is perfectly sufficient. But let me speak to them collectively anyway. I warn you all. You were not elected to create a democratic majority. You were elected to restore this country. You were not elected to serve the corporations and the trusts who the government has enabled for these last eight years. You were elected to serve the people. And if you fail to pass or support this legislation, the full wrath of the progressive and the moderate movements in this country will come down on your heads. Explain yourselves not to me, but to them they elected you and in the blink of an eye they will replace you if you will behave as if you are republicans as if you are the prostitutes of our system you will be judged as such and you will lose not merely our respect you will lose your jobs every poll every analysis every vote every region of this country supports health care reform and the essential great leveling agent of a government-funded alternative to the unchecked duopoly of profiteering private insurance corporations cross us all at your peril because congressman ross you are not the representative from blue cross and Mr. Baucus, you are not the senator from Sharing Plough Global Healthcare, even if they have already given you 76 grand towards your re-election. And Ms. Lincoln, you are not the senator from DeVita Dialysis. Because ladies and gentlemen, President Lincoln did not promise that this nation shall have a new death of freedom and that government of the corporation, by the corporation, for the corporation, shall not perish from this earth.
2: Seems like things are gonna go a different way It's time for this generation to be heard It's time that we tell the world That the time of lies is come to an end and we can reign again, again And as he swore this song, Lincoln's Bible we proved to the world that we weren't
1: wrong Finally tonight, as promised, a special comment on the inaccurately described Ground Zero Mosque. They came first for the Communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for me, and by that time, no one was left to speak up. Pastor Martin Niemöller's words are well known, but their context is not well understood. Niemöller was not speaking abstractly. He witnessed persecution, he acquiesced to it, he ultimately fell victim to it. He had been a German World War I hero, then a conservative who welcomed the fall of German democracy and the rise of Hitler, and he had few qualms about the beginning of the Holocaust until he himself was arrested for supporting it insufficiently. Niemöller's confessional warning came first in a speech in Frankfurt in January 1946, eight months after he had been liberated by American troops. He had been detained at Tirol, Sachsenhausen and Dachau for seven years. Niemöller survived the death camps. In quoting him, I make no direct comparison between the attempts to suppress the building of a Muslim religious center in downtown Manhattan and the unimaginable nightmare of the Holocaust. Such a comparison is ludicrous. At least it is now. But Niemöller was not warning of the Holocaust. He was warning of the willingness of a seemingly rational society to condone the gradual stoking of enmity towards an ethnic or religious group, or more than one, warning of the building up of a collective pool of national fear and hate. Warning of the moment in which the need to purge outstrips even the parameters of the original scapegoating, when new victims are needed because a country has begun to run on a horrible fuel of hatred, magnified, amplified, multiplied by politicians and zealots within government and without. Niemöller was not warning of the Holocaust. He was warning of the thousand steps before a Holocaust became inevitable. If we are at merely the first of those steps again today, here it is one step too close. Yet in a country dedicated to freedom, forces have gathered to blow out of all proportion the construction of a minor community center to transform it into a training ground for terrorists and an insult to the victims of 9-11 and a tribute to medieval Muslim subjugation of the West. There is no training ground for terrorists. There is no insult to the victims of 9-11. There is no tribute to medieval Muslim subjugation of the West. There is, in fact, no ground zero mosque. It isn't a mosque. A mosque, technically, is a Muslim holy place in which only worship can be conducted. What is planned for 45 Park Place, New York City is a community center. It's supposed to include a basketball court and a culinary school. It is to be 13 stories tall, and the top two stories will be a Muslim prayer space. What a cauldron of terrorism that will be. Terrorist chefs and terrorist point guards. And truly, those who will use the center have more to fear from us than us from them for there has been terrorism connected to a mosque in this country in this year. May 10th, Jacksonville, Florida, a pipe bomb at the Islamic Center of Northeast Florida. The FBI thinks the man in this surveillance video could be the bomber. The bomb went off during evening prayers, and it was powerful enough to send shrapnel flying 100 yards. Fortunately, the bomber didn't know where to place it, so the 60 Muslim worshippers were uninjured. If he had put it inside and not outside, they'd have been dead. And you probably would have heard about it on the news. Or maybe not. Maybe those exploiting 45 Park Place would still shake their fists and decry terrorism by extremists who happen to be Muslim and never face the shameful truth about our country. As the Jacksonville mosque bombing shows, since 9-11, Muslims have been at far greater risk of being victims of terrorism in the United States than have non-Muslims. But back to this Islamic center, its name, Cordoba House. He is not a tribute to the medieval Muslim subjugation of Spain. Newt Gingrich has been pushing that nonsense, that Cordoba is Muslim dog whistle for triumphalism. It refers to Cordoba, Spain, the capital of Muslim conquerors who symbolized their victory over the Christian Spaniards by transforming a church there into the world's third largest mosque complex. Today some of the mosque's backers insist this term is being used to symbolize interfaith cooperation, when in fact every Islamist in the world recognizes Cordoba as a symbol of Islamic conquest. Those Muslim conquerors are a figment of Mr. Gingrich's lurid imagination. In Spain, in Cordoba, Though the Muslims established multicultural, non-denominational institutions of learning, they were under constant attack from Christian armies and from a series of internal all-Muslim civil wars. The Muslims lost Cordoba, and the Christian church they transformed into the world's third-largest mosque complex that was turned back into a Christian cathedral in the 13th century, and it has been one ever since. And is there not a logical extension to Mr. Gingrich's conclusions about Cordoba and triumphalism? Virtually every church, virtually every synagogue, indeed every mosque built on this continent stands where a Native American lived or died or was buried or saw his world, his religions included, wiped out by us. What are we then, Mr. Gingrich? And by the way, a point Mr. Gingrich has not even whispered as he has shouted fire in a crowded theater. When the historical implications of Cordoba were made clear to the backers of this project, the property developer, Sharif Gamal, changed the name. They already compromised. We are calling it Park 51 because of the backlash to the name Cordoba House, he told the Financial Times. It will be a place open to all New Yorkers, and that is a very New York name. A very New York name, like Ground Zero. Except that this place, Park 51, is not even at Ground Zero, not even right across the street. Even the description of it being two blocks away is generous. It is two blocks away from the northeast corner of the World Trade Center site. From the planned location of the 9-11 memorial, it's more like four or five blocks, even. You know what is right across the street, though? I went there yesterday to refresh my sense of the World Trade Center in which I worked nearly 30 years ago. At Church and Vesey Street, so close that the barbed wire of Ground Zero obscures its spire, is St. Paul's Chapel. Been there since 1766, where Washington went the day he was inaugurated, where the first responders came for relief nine years ago. You know, it's also closer to Ground Zero than this Muslim community center will be. Church of St. Peter at Church and Barclay Streets. As the sign says, New York's oldest Catholic parish. People hear Ground Zero Mosque and they think Mecca in the backyard and a loud call to prayer and they take umbrage. We got no more than a few inches of skin and a couple of pieces of bone. Ground Zero is the burial place of my son, said Joyce Boland at the public hearing about this center. I don't want to go there and see an overwhelming mosque looking down at me. I honor her pain and her fear, but Mrs. Boland has nothing to worry about. Unless she walks directly over to it several blocks away, she'll never see the thing. This is what you see from where the center will be. Another nondescript building is across the street. This building and others like it will block views of the Trade Center and views from the Trade Center. The community center certainly will stand out on the north side of the park place. But amid the canyons of lower Manhattan, it'll just be a distinctive building that if you happen to wander down a side street near the Trade Center, you might see it. You know what you'll see there now? This. The Burlington Coat Factory, abandoned since 2001, when the landing gear from one of the planes fell 90 stories and went through the roof. For nine years, nobody's been willing to buy that building just to knock it down and build a new one. It sold for $4,850,000. In New York City real estate, that is spare change. And you know why it's spare change? Because walk around Ground Zero any day of the week and it's packed with tourists and our version of Pilgrims, but walk two and three blocks away and not so packed. Not packed at all. Empty stores, boarded up windows, nine years later and two and three blocks from the action. It's a ghost town. What was that about government not getting in the way of private business? What was that about letting the private sector spur new jobs in blighted areas? And What was that about Iraq? Why did we go into Iraq again? I don't mean the real versions, or the naked, vengeful blindness that enabled the forging of a non-existent connection between Iraq and 9-11, I mean the official explanation. To free the world, and especially Iraq's citizens, of the tyranny of Saddam Hussein. That's its supporters' defense of the Iraq invasion to this hour. Well, who lives in Iraq? Muslims! I hate to reveal this to anybody on the right who did not know this, but when they say Iraq is 65 percent Shia and 32 percent Sunni, you do know that Shia and Sunni are both forms of the Muslim religion, right? We sacrificed 4,415 of our military personnel in Iraq to save Muslims, and there are thousands of us still there tonight to protect Muslims, but we don't want Muslims to open a combination culinary school and prayer space in Manhattan? From the beginning of this nation, we have fought prejudice and religious intolerance and our greatest enemy, stupidity exploited by rapacious politicians. It is only 50 years now, this month, since Americans publicly and urgently warned their countrymen not to support presidential candidate, because he was a Roman Catholic. He would bow to the will, not of the American people, but of the Pope. He would be a Papist. He would be the agent of a foreign state. His name was John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Despite the nobility of our founding and the indefatigable efforts of all of our generations, there have always been those who would happily sacrifice our freedoms, our principles, to ward off the latest unprecedented threat, the latest unbeatable outsiders. And once again, at 45 Park Place, we are being told to sell our birthright to feed the maw of xenophobia and vengeance and mob rule. The terrorists who destroyed the buildings from which you could only see 45 Park Place as a dot on the ground wanted to force us to change our country, to become more like the ones they knew. What better way could we honor the dead of the World Trade Center than to do the terrorists' heavy lifting for them? Do you think 45 Park Place is where it ends? The moment this monstrous betrayal of our America gained the slightest traction, the next goal was unveiled. No more building permits for any mosques in this country, brayed a man from the euphemistically named American Families Association. Of course, he said, maybe the permits could be granted if the congregation, quote, was willing to publicly renounce the Koran. They came first for the building permits. But back to downtown, does the name Majjid Manhattan mean anything to you? Let me take you, in conclusion, to 20 Warren Street, New York City. Not much to look at. Not from across the street. Not from up close. That open door there, that's the only thing that distinguishes it from the rest of the grill fronts of the neighborhood. That and the yellow sign there, entrance to Islamic Center. It's in the basement. It's a Muslim house of worship, Masjid Manhattan. It lost its lease in a larger building down the street two years ago. The new facility is so small that only about 20 percent of worshippers can use it at a time, but Masjid Manhattan opened in early 1970. Four blocks away, the World Trade Center opened in December 1970. The actual place that is the real-life equivalent right now of the paranoid dream contained in the phrase, Ground Zero Mosque, has been up and running since before there was a World Trade Center and for the nine years since there has been a World Trade Center, running without controversy, without incident, without terrorism, without protest. Because this is America, damn it. And in America, when somebody comes for your neighbor, or his Bible, or his Torah, or his atheist manifesto, or his Koran, you and I do what our fathers did, and our grandmothers did, and our founders did. You and I speak up.
2: Though I feel my hands are tied, sometimes things just need to be said. So come on, come on, and lead the way not afraid. for one everyone, everyone, won't you let me hear? You? Speak for everything I ever spoke to you. Come on, come on and leave away. Speak up, speak up and be not afraid. for one everyone, everyone would you let me hear? You? Speak for everything I ever spoke to you.
1: There is one thing certainly worse than repeating yourself. It's shuffling the words you've already chosen to speak and speak for you gratuitously. Thus, tonight, I will stand by what I said here on the night of November 10, 2008, after California voters passed Prop 8. This may seem like a question of law. This may seem like a question of same-sex relationships. It is, in truth, neither. It is, solely, a question of love. Finally tonight, as promised, a special comment on the passage last week of Proposition 8 in California, which rescinded the right of same-sex couples to marry and tilted the balance on this issue from coast to coast. Some parameters as preface. This isn't about yelling, and this isn't about politics, and this isn't really just about Prop 8. And I don't have a personal investment in this. I'm not gay. I had to strain to think of one member of even my very extended family who is. I have no personal stories of close friends or colleagues fighting prejudice that still pervades their lives. And yet to me, this vote is horrible, horrible, because this isn't about yelling and this isn't about politics. This is about the human heart. And if that sounds corny, so be it. If you voted for this proposition or you support those who did or the sentiment they expressed, I have some questions because truly, I do not understand. Why does this matter to you? What is it to you? In a time of impermanence and fly-by-night relationships, these people over here want the same chance at permanence and happiness that is your option. They don't want to deny you yours. They don't want to take anything away from you. They want what you want, a chance to be a little less alone in the world. Only now you are saying to them, no, you can't have it on these terms. Maybe something similar if they behave, if they don't cause too much trouble. You'll even give them all the same legal rights, even as you are taking away the legal right which they already had. A world around them still anchored in love and marriage, and you're saying, no, you can't marry. What if somebody passed a law that said you couldn't marry? I keep hearing this term redefining marriage. If this country hadn't redefined marriage, black people still couldn't marry white people. 16 states had laws on the books which made that illegal in 1967. 1967, the parents of the president elected of the United States could not have married in nearly one-third of the states of the country their son grew up to lead. But it's worse than that. If this country had not redefined marriage, some black people still couldn't marry other black people. It is one of the most overlooked and cruelest parts of our sad history of slavery. Marriages were not legally recognized if the people were slaves. Since slaves were property, they could not be legally husband and wife, nor mother and child. Their marriage vows were different. Not until death do you part, but until death or distance do you part. Marriages among slaves were not legally recognized. You know, just like marriages today in California are not legally recognized if the people are gay. And uncountable in our history are the number of men and women forced by society into marrying the opposite sex in sham marriages, or marriages of convenience, or just marriages of not knowing. Centuries of men and women who have lived their lives in shame and unhappiness and who have through a lie to themselves or others broken countless other lives of spouses and children all because we said a man could not marry another man or a woman could not marry another woman. The sanctity of marriage. How many marriages like that have there been? And how on earth do they increase the sanctity of marriage rather than render that term meaningless? What is this to you? Nobody is asking you to embrace their expression of love. But don't you as human beings have to embrace that love The world is barren enough. It is stacked against love and against hope and against those very few and precious emotions that enable us, all of us, to go forward. Your marriage only stands a 50-50 chance of lasting, no matter how much you feel and how hard you work. And here are people overjoyed at the prospect of just that chance and that work just for the hope of having that feeling. With so much hate in the world, with so much meaningless division and people pitted against each other for no good reason this is what your religion tells you to do with your experience of life and this world and all its sadnesses this is what your conscience tells you to do with your knowledge that life with endless vigor seems to tilt the playing field in which we all live in favor of unhappiness and hate this is what your heart tells you to do you want to sanctify marriage you want to honor your God and the universal love you believe he represents then spread happiness, this tiny symbolic, semantical grain of happiness. Share it with all those who seek it. Quote me anything from your religious leader or book of choice telling you to stand against this, and then tell me how you can believe both that statement and another statement, and another one which reads only, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You are asked now by your country, perhaps by your creator, to stand on one side or another. You are asked now to stand not on a question of politics, not a question of religion, not on a question of gay or straight. You are asked now to stand on a question of love. All you need to do is stand and let the tiny ember of love meet its own fate. You don't have to help it. You don't have to applaud it. You don't have to fight for it. Just don't put it out. Just don't extinguish it. Because while it may at first look like that love is between two people you don't know and you don't understand and maybe you don't even want to know, that love is in fact the ember of your love for your fellow person. Just because this is the only world we have and the other guy counts too. This is the second time I have found myself in 10 days concluding by turning to, of all things, the closing plea for mercy by Clarence Darrow in a murder trial. But what he said fits what is really at the heart of all of this. He said, I was reading last night of the aspiration of the old Persian poet Omar Khayyam. This is what he told the judge. It appealed to me as the highest that I can vision. I wish it was in my heart. I wish it was in the hearts of all. So I be written in the book of love. I do not care about that book above. Erase my name or write it as you will. So I be written in the book of love.
2: Who wrote the book? romance in you break up but you give it just one more chance oh, I wonder, wonder who, who wrote the book
1: of This will be the last edition of Countdown. I'll explain that next I think the same fantasy has popped into the head of everybody in my business who has ever been told what I've been told that this is going to be the last edition of your show. You go directly to the scene from the movie Network, complete with the pajamas and the raincoat. And you go off on an existential, otherworldly, verbal journey of unutterable profundity and vision. You damn the impediments and you insist upon the insurrections. And then you emit Peter Finch's guttural, resonant, So. And you implore, you will the viewer to go to the window, open it, stick out his head and yell. Well, you know the rest. In the mundane world of television goodbyes, reality is laughably uncooperative. When I resigned from ESPN 13 and a half years ago, I was literally given 30 seconds to say goodbye at the very end of my last edition of SportsCenter. As God is my witness, in the commercial break just before the emotional moment, the producer got into my earpiece and he said, "Uh, can you cut it down to 15 seconds so we can get in this tennis result from Stuttgart? So I'm grateful that I have a little more time to sign off here. Regardless, this is the last edition of Countdown. It is just under eight years since I returned to MSNBC. I was supposed to fill in for the late Jerry Knackman for exactly three days. Forty nine days later, there was a four year contract for me to return to this nightly 8 p.m. time slot, which I had fled four years earlier. The show gradually established its position as anti establishment from the stagecraft of Mission Accomplished to the exaggerated rescue of Jessica Lynch in Iraq to the death of Pat Tillman to Hurricane Katrina, to the nexus of politics and terror, to the first special comment, the program grew and grew thanks entirely to your support, with great rewards for me, and I hope for you, too. There were many occasions, particularly in the last two and a half years, where all that surrounded the show, but never the show itself, was just too much for me, but your support and loyalty, and if I may use the word insistence, ultimately required that I keep going. My gratitude to you is boundless, and if you think I've done any good here, imagine how it looked from this end, as you donated $2 million to the National Association of Free Clinics, and my dying father watched from his hospital bed, transcendentally comforted that his struggles were inspiring such overwhelming good for people he and I and you would never meet, but would always know. This may be the only television program wherein the host was much more in awe of the audience than vice versa. You will always be in my heart for that, and for the donations to the Kranach family in Tennessee and these victims of governmental heartlessness in Arizona, to say nothing of every letter and email and tweet and wave and handshake and online petition. Time ebbs here, and I want to close with one more Thurber story. It is still Friday. So let me thank my gifted staff here, and just a few of the many people here who fought with me and for me. Eric Sorensen, Phil Alange, Neil Shapiro, Michael Weissman, the late David Bloom, John Palmer, Alana Russo, Monica Novotny, my dear friends Rachel Maddow and Bob Costas, and my greatest protector and most indefatigable cheerleader, the late Tim Russert.
2: Hello, Jay. This is Ron from Pittsburgh calling. Wanted to, first of all, just thank you for putting together such a fantastically enjoyable show. It's, uh, the highlights of my week are when there's a new show posted. But I'm really calling to suggest a show. I feel like with the sudden loss of Keith Olbermann and Countdown, who, believe me, it really feels like a loss in the family, at least here in this household, um... And the fact that you've used so much of his uh, show on your show, I thought Keith deserved uh, an entire episode uh, based around him. He's had some fantastic special comments. He is, uh, you know, one of the most brilliant people on television, certainly of uh, the liberal bent. And um, I really think that Keith deserves nothing less. For all I know, you're already working on a show like this. I'm sure it takes a while to put something together, but it was just a suggestion and a thought that that might make an interesting, good show devoted completely to Keith. Thanks again for a fantastic show, Jay, and uh, keep up the good work, and happy sailing. Aloha, Jay. This is Vicki from Hawaii. Um... I called once before, and I haven't heard um, a response to my question. And that was why you don't use um, Grit TV as um, one of your one of the shows that you. Uh, I'm sorry, Grit Radio, which is clips from Grit TV, as one of your sources. And to add to that, um, they do quite a bit of stuff on Palestine, Israel. And as does Democracy Now! I know you pick up Democracy Now! once in a while. And you can get lots of good stuff from them. Thank you.
1: Hello, best of the left. This is Patrick from beautiful Los Angeles, California calling. Um, I'm just calling because uh, I'm a regular listener. I um, love the show. And uh, I like listening to the voicemails, but I can't help but feel that the people leaving the voicemails are of an overwhelmingly male persuasion. Now, I don't believe for a minute that Jay would somehow be taking all the women out of the uh, voicemail section. So that leaves me to believe that it's mostly men doing the message leaving. And I wonder about that. Maybe this is just a challenge to all the women out there who want to get their voices heard. Hey, leave some messages because Lord knows we have enough uh, male voices out there on talk radio and on the news telling us what they think. Anyway, that's it. Keep up the great work, Jay. Love the show. I look forward to it uh, every third day as you say in your ad. All right. You have a good one.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Now, to quickly respond to a couple of the calls from today, Uh, Vicky from Hawaii, I I did get your original message. I got this message. I have begun listening to great radio. We will see what comes of that. Uh, the answer to anybody's question, anything along the lines of why aren't you using source X on your show is essentially I have uh, I, I've gone past my limit for the number of uh, sources I'm able to consume, really. And uh, so without going into much detail, I, what the analogy I thought of today is I'm doing kind of the media equivalent of borrowing from the Social Security Trust Fund to make it look like my budget is, uh, y- you know, evening out, but it's really not. I'm really falling farther and farther behind as as time goes on. So I'm gonna have to make some adjustments at some point. Uh, figure out a system for volunteers to help more. I, I haven't figured it out yet, uh, but that's the position I'm in. Just so everybody knows. Um, so you know, if you uh, if you suggest a new source to me and I don't uh, pick it up, that's the reason. Uh, and then Patrick talking about, uh, you know, women should be calling in the show more, certainly an admirable, you know, thing to raise. Just in the defense of women, I wanted to point out the the fact that according to the uh, several hundred people who have filled out the um, survey that is linked on the website so that I can get to know, you know, who you are and what you like, and you can Uh, you know, leave kind of detailed yet anonymous comments about the show. Uh, One of the questions on there deals with demographics, and the demographics of this show is about 76% male to 24% female. So um, that probably goes a long way to explaining why we hear from women a little bit less than men. But a valid point anyways. And now I wanted to give you my take on uh, Keith Olbermann, and I'm not going to give him, like, a big glowing uh, eulogy uh, for a couple of reasons first because he's not dead and uh, we probably in all likelihood have not heard the last of him uh, there's uh, every chance in the world that he will come back in some uh, incarnation on some station somehow somewhere and uh, and the other reason is because I uh, didn't think of him in, in uh, exclusively glowing terms you know when his show was on MSNBC. So I want to give you a little bit of that perspective, which is that, you know, first of all, I agree with anyone and everyone who says that he was an absolutely pivotal player in changing the format of MSNBC to allow to to make space for people like Rachel Maddow and Ed Schultz. And Cenk Uger to uh, get a foothold and, um, and and get on MSNBC and get more of a progressive point of view out to a wider audience. Uh, Keith, I mean, it is it is absolutely undeniable that he was basically the linchpin that started that trend, as evidenced by the clips that I used in this show and uh, you know over the years and in this particular episode as kind of a remembrance of of things he had said. He was capable of speaking incredibly eloquently and essentially right on the money on an incredible variety of topics. Uh, he was obviously incredibly empathetic and uh, and essentially right in line with my own way of thinking on uh, issue after issue. So I would never take any of that away from him. I think uh, his heart was always in the right place. I feel like he uh, you know did a really good job for what he did and any uh, qualms that I have with, uh, with him or his show really uh, come down to, to not much more than uh, some of the emphasis he would put on uh, one story over another and some of his uh, tone. And when, when you come down to it in the big picture of things, that's not enough to write somebody off. And obviously I was not one of those people who wrote him off, there is a group of people out there who you know, thinks that Keith Oberman is uh, the left-wing equivalent of Glenn Beck or Rush Limbaugh. Um, that's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. But I see the seed of where that argument comes from. So my takeaway on it is that the good he did – overwhelmingly outweighs any of the negativity he brought to, you know, kind of the the progressive movement by some of his rhetoric or or whatever uh, that caused him to be a lightning rod for uh, criticism, you know, from the left and right. So at the very least, I recognize him as being uh, an enormous net positive at the very least, you know, but I wouldn't be being honest if I said that I just thought he was great, and everything he did was great, and I loved his show and everything about it, and uh, and and whatnot. Because uh, you know, frankly, I had a lot of problems with it. There there were uh, many, many times listening to his show that um, you know that I found cringeworthy is uh, is the word that comes to mind. Um, But but when he came through, he really came through in a big way. So those are basically my thoughts on that, and as I said, I do think that we will see him in another incarnation at some point, and uh, and when that happens, I think it'll be a good thing. So now I just want to thank a couple members. Michael J. signed up for a leftist membership back on May 24th and signed up for a year in advance. And Catherine W. signed up for a leftist membership as well. Uh, monthly membership starting on August 9th. So huge thanks to Michael and Catherine and all the members who make the show possible. I couldn't do it without you guys. Everyone can support the show by continuing to tell everyone you know about it. If you have a Twitter account, you can donate tweets to me. Uh, Go to bestoftheleft.com and uh, check out the big uh, donate your account box. Click through on that. Get all the details there. Of course, you can just follow what's going on with the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all of that information is available in the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
2: Show